And imagine that in a community uh, as diverse as ours, there's probably a, a wide range of responses to how people in the rooms in all three of our locations uh, responded to the video that we just watched. Um, especially that last idea when in the video the, the narrator says, clearly sex is broken. I hear that sentence, clearly sex is broken. And I wonder whether people across our locations would say Clearly, sex is broken. I can imagine someone, people, in some of our locations saying, well, I, I'm not so sure about that. You know, sex used to be this repressed and hidden thing that you're not supposed to talk about. And now the conversation is out there and it's out in the open. And, and it's something that we can talk about without having to hide. It's not so taboo anymore. And I think that's a fantastically healthy thing. And I personally agree with that. And yet I can imagine hearing somebody else say, yeah, yes. And yet now it's so out there and it's so open and it's so all pervasive and everywhere that people and our kids are being confronted with sexual issues that they shouldn't have to be dealing with. Uh, you've grade five students organizing orgy parties and that's just really broken. And that's, and that's true. I can hear somebody reflecting on their personal experience and saying, I'm not, I'm not so sure that sex is broken. In my relationship with, with my partner, we love each other and we're devoted to each other. And, and sex is like this spiritual bond that, that weaves us together and, and unites us in our relationship. And it's a really beautiful thing. And I say, absolutely, that's that's wonderful and good and beautiful. And yet I hear somebody else say, but I'm... I'm more like the other person in the video. The, I'm engaging in the transaction and I'm not getting what I need out of this. In fact, I feel like I keep paying out and end up, I end up coming short. And, and now spiritually I feel hollow and empty. And that's, and that's really broken. I hear somebody saying... I'm, you know, I'm glad that sex has been ripped out of the hands of the church where it was something always dirty and sinful, which is real. I grew up, I grew up believing that sex was probably a sin and committed to not um, experimenting to find out even in marriage. And I mean, when I was young, and I'm thankful that in the meantime, I have figured out otherwise. But, but I hear somebody else saying, yes, it... The church should have never talked about it as though it were, sex were dirty and sinful, but I'm not sure the culture has handled it much better. And in some ways, it just seems really broken. And, and to me, um, it's a confusing thing, or at least there are a lot of questions to ask around the issue of what Jesus says for people like us who gather in environments like this because we want to live lives of full devotion to Jesus Christ, what Jesus would say about the role of sex in the life of somebody who is following him. And really, that's what we're here to talk about this morning because in the Sermon on the Mount, this section of Matthew chapter 5 that we're looking at in this heart condition series, Jesus turns his attention towards our sex lives and he tries to unfold a little bit about what God's heart for us in our sex lives is for those who are interested in living lives of wholehearted devotion to following Jesus. And so... 
In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27, this is what Jesus says. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. You've heard it said, you should not commit adultery. Jesus is quoting from the Ten Commandments again. And laying out the the baseline standard from Scripture, from the Old Testament religious law, of what a, a, a life of faithfulness to God when it comes to our sexuality, what that kind of life looks like. And the baseline standard is you don't commit adultery. Now, technically, the word adultery literally talks about violating a marriage covenant by um, looking for sex outside of it. And so what that command literally says is if you're married, don't sleep with someone who isn't your spouse. And if you're, you know, if you're out, don't sleep with somebody else's spouse. Right? Don't sleep with someone who's not your spouse and don't sleep with somebody else's spouse. It's sort of the narrow definition. But it's really clear, actually, in the Old Testament law that the intention of the law is meant to be broader than that. In fact, just a, a couple chapters later in Exodus 22, there is a, another statement of the law that includes uh, singleness. And it says in Exodus 22, if a, if a man seduces a virgin who's not pledged to be married and he sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price, and she shall be his wife. What's in view in the text are two single people who find themselves attracted to each other. And the Old Testament religious law says if two people, two single people who are not engaged to be married sleep together, then the guy has to pay the bride price, and guess what? This is now your wife. You were the one who wanted her, and now you get her for the rest of your natural life. It's clearly a law that is meant to deter people from having casual and even cavalier attitudes towards sex. And sleeping with people who are not their spouse. The Old Testament religious law, the, the, the general sense of what it looks like to live faithfully in your sexuality in a relationship with God is that you do not sleep with somebody who is not your spouse. Period. Because sexuality in the Old Testament is intricately interwoven into the biblical vision for marriage. See, the biblical vision for marriage is kind of a three-sided thing. There are three parts to the way the Bible envisions what a marriage relationship is. A marriage relationship is a friendship or a, a partnership in life between two people who are fundamentally committed to each other and who have sealed that covenant with sex. In Genesis 2.18, this is sort of the beginning of the Bible's description of marriage, unfolding of it. It says, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. God's, in reality, God's talking about our need for community. But, he, but the most intimate kind of community we can experience is in the intimacy of marriage. And God looks down at Adam in the story and he says, it's not good for the man... To be alone, I need him to have a complementary equal partner who can be a helper to him. Now, don't understand the word helper to mean some sort of inferior partner who is a glorified executive assistant picking up laundry and doing all the things that mom won't do anymore. That's not what it means. In fact, the word helper most of the time in the Old Testament is applied to God himself. Um, so if anything... 
It's a superior, stronger partner who needs to do on behalf of the man what the man cannot do for himself. But the biblical vision is, I will make a complementary equal to be a partner together in life so that the two of them can help each other. And a few verses later, down in verse 24, it says, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. It says that's why when you find that complementary other who is going to be your full partner in life, you leave your family of origin as your primary family commitment, and you cling to this person who is your complementary equal, this person who's going to be your partner. It's the, the image of like clinging to a life preserver in the middle of a storm. You grab a hold of them, and you do not let go for your because your life depends on it. And the two of you will be joined together as one flesh. And since the next verse talks about their nakedness, I take that to mean you're joined together through sexual intimacy. So in the biblical vision of marriage, what you have are people who are friends and companions and partners in life and in whatever calling God has put on them as a couple, who, secondly, have joined themselves together, are clinging to each other in the permanence of a marriage commitment that is sealed on the third side, that is sealed with the sexual intimacy that comes through sex. The friendship leads to a commitment, the commitment of marriage that is sealed by sex. That's not the way we, as a culture, have lived sexuality in those three, that three-sided triangle. There's some folks who say, you know, friendship and commitment be darned. I just want the sexual gratification. And, and some of us have lived a sexual life of one night stands and booty calls and picking up and even paying for sex. So we don't want relationship and we don't want commitment. We just want to be satisfied. And there are others who have said, no, I don't want that. I don't want that sort of raw sexual gratification. I want the relationship. I'm not going to sleep with you on the first date. I'm not going to sleep with you on the third date. I want to know that we have a relationship, a solid relationship, that we love each other. And when I know that we love each other, well, then I will give you myself sexually. Which is a better decision, but still not entirely what God would Imagine there are others who have said, well, actually, I want more than that. I want, I want not just to know that we love each other, but I want to know that there's a commitment coming. And I'm going to wait until we're engaged until, or until I know that we're engaged before I give myself to you sexually. Because I want the security of that commitment. Which is even a better decision and still not yet what God has described in Scripture. That in the biblical vision for sexuality, sex comes within the context of two people committing themselves to each other in the permanence of a marriage bond to be partners together for life. And that covenant connection is sealed through the intimacy of sex. And I know there are some people in our community for whom that's just that's just new information. And you genuinely didn't know that that was the, 
the biblical standard of what our sexual lives look like, lived in faithfulness to God. And to you, what I would want to say this morning, really simply out of Acts chapter 17, it says, and God overlooked their ignorance. That God is a God of grace who says, fair enough, I get it, you didn't know. Now you do. Let's rethink some of the choices that we're making. There's some who did know and who've said, you know what, that's just not what I want. What I want is to live my sex life this way. And God says, I I know that you've done that, but Jesus says in John chapter 7, he says, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. Now's the time to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm just going to make different choices than that. Because the baseline standard for our sexuality in relationship with Jesus Christ is that sex is something that is reserved and preserved for the permanent covenant bond of marriage. Now I know that there are people in our community who have made that commitment, who have said that is exactly the kind of person that I want to be. They made a fundamental commitment that I, to the best of my ability, I am not going to sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend before our wedding night because I want to live up to God's standard. Well, Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But this is what he says. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says, listen, this has been the biblical standard. Don't keep sex for marriage. But he says, don't think that just because you've checked that box and never slept with your boyfriend or girlfriend, don't think that you are living out the fullness of what it is that I desire for you, what it is that I dream for you. The second you take that, I will not sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend or my fiance or whatever. The second you take that and turn it into a religious rule that you're committed to keeping, Jesus says, you've entirely missed the point. You've turned it into a legal rule checkbox, a a legalistic religious standard, and I'm not into legalistic rule keeping. And friends, we do that with this rule all the time in the church. People who say, I don't don't want to sleep with my boyfriend and girlfriend until we get married. And then oftentimes the question that follows is, so how far can I go? I don't want to break the rule So how much sexuality can I embrace before I've broken the religious rule and disappointed God? That's the heart of the question. Can we French kiss? You know, can I feel her up? Can we go under the clothes? It only gets more graphic from there. The question, as soon as you're asking the question, how far can I go? You have demonstrated that you've missed the point of what it is that Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't asking you to set aside a legal religious rule that you're supposed to try and keep. What Jesus wants is to address what goes on in our heart. And what's going on in the heart of the person who says, how far can I go? Is that they are lusting after sexual gratification through their partner. And Jesus says, as soon as you look at a person lustfully, you you have the heart of an adulterer. You've just missed missed the point. You've not yet understood what it means to follow me. Now, what Jesus doesn't mean, by the way, is that anybody who has found a person 
beautiful or anybody who's been attracted to somebody who isn't their partner, anybody even who's been sexually aroused by somebody who is not their partner. Our body has natural ways of responding to beauty. And so Jesus is not talking about the first look. He's talking about the second and the length of the third look. In fact, what it literally means is if you look at a person with the intention of lusting after them, then your heart is still not fully devoted to following me. If you look at a person to feed your sexual imagination, if you look at a person in order to toy around with fantasies, if you look at a person to fuel the fire of craving and passion and desire, if you look at a person lustfully to lust after them, Jesus says, your heart has not yet been fully surrendered over to me. And friends, I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to lay it out on the table. We all do this. All of us. All of us. Especially in a culture as hypersexualized as ours. We all do this. Men do this in, I think, really obvious ways. Ways that we've talked about. Um, ways that everybody talks about. You know, through the porn industry and, you know, rubbernecking and looking at women on the beach and staring at girls' parts depending on how they're dressed. And, I mean, all of the ways in which men battle with their eyes and struggle with lust, I think, are well publicized. I think what gets talked about less is the fact that women struggle with this just as much. Not necessarily with porn, though one-third of all porn clicks on the internet are, are clicked by women. Um, sometimes through really sexualized literature like Fifty Shades of Grey, which exists only to um, stoke the fires of lust in our hearts, but in more subtle ways. Through the visions of marriage and relationship and family that are painted by romantic comedies and television shows and, and romantic fiction, by the ways even in the church we talk about marriage in an ideal kind of way or how well-intentioned friends and family remind women that you know, their goal is to ultimately settle down and find a man and get married. And, um, and all it does is stoke in the minds of a woman this fantasy of the perfect guy who will take care of her financially because he's got a good job and who will take care of her emotionally because he's so sensitive and who will take care of her family because he's great with kids and who will take care of her spiritually because he's got such a strong faith and who will take care of her security because he'll offer her a rock solid commitment and who will take care of her physically and sexually because he's attractive and, and women, um, as I understand, <laughs> will look at a man through the eyes of what needs of mine can you meet and will lust after him. And it's exactly the same as the way a guy looks at a woman in porn because the heart behind it is to objectify the other person, to strip them of their dignity, to disrespect their humanity, and to treat them only as an object whose purpose is to satisfy my needs. That's what Jesus is talking about. 
He says the heart that God wants for every one of us is a heart that has ridden itself of the selfishness of lust, which, whose only desire is to take and to fill us with the love that comes from God, whose only desire is to give. See, love and lust are exact opposites. Love exists to give, to pour itself out in friendship that always only ever prioritizes the needs and well-being and what's best for the other person. That offers itself in a commitment of self-sacrificing love that will pay any cost and remain devoted to the other person no matter what. That prioritizes the pleasure and happiness of the other person sexually in, in when there's a sexual relationship that only ever says this is about what you're comfortable with and what you want and what, what is good for you and what helps you and what gives you pleasure. Love is always only ever about the other person. Lust is always only ever about me. It's about what I can get from you, whether you have consented to give it to me or not. In the absence of commitment, with absolute disregard for relationship, I will take from you sexual gratification, whether you plan to participate or not. Jesus says that's just so far from the heart of God. Jesus says, the question isn't, have you ever slept with your girlfriend? The question is, what sits in your heart? Is your heart full of the selfishness of lust? Or is your heart full of the love of God? Will you let me deal with your heart? To cleanse you and wash you of the guilt and shame that comes from sex the way you've been using it. That allows me to cut out the selfishness of lust and to transplant in the selflessness of love for God. And a love for people that will fundamentally transform you. So that instead of experiencing sex in its brokenness, you can experience sex in all of its beauty. For what God always intended and created it to be. You can avoid all of the pain and the guilt and the shame in order to experience life in all of its fullness and joy and satisfaction and meaning and fulfillment. Because you have lived the heart of love rather than the heart of lust towards the people with whom you're in relationship and those that you're not. A little while ago, I came across a story of a guy named Nick who began battling with an addiction to pornography when he was 11 years old. And some number of years later, he wrote a letter in the form of a poem to his 11-year-old self, trying to warn himself of the dangers of indulging a heart of lust, specifically through pornography, and inviting that 11-year-old self instead to choose the kind of freedom that comes through Jesus Christ. And I know that this is a guy And not a girl. And this is just one very specific way that people grapple with lust. But I want you to listen to his story. To his letter to himself. Listen to the invitation. To choose the freedom and forgiveness. That comes from Christ. Check this out. Listen. I I want you to hear me in this. It's moments like the one we've just experienced that that's why we gather together to bring our hearts before Jesus and to say, would you please you know, do your work in me? And when we sing a line like, 
I hope that I can change. You need to understand We're not talking about some pipe dream wish, man. It would be sure nice if one day somehow all of this could be different. My heart could be changed. The hope that we have for change is the reality that because Jesus died and was raised again, he defeated sin in you. He's already beaten it. And we now just have to learn to tap into the spiritual power that comes to the, by the Holy Spirit in us to be the kind of different people whose hearts are being changed. And that's not passive. In fact, that's something that we're actively a part of. Jesus in, in Matthew 5 goes on to say, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't being literalistic here. He's not advocating for self-mutilation because a one-eyed, one-handed person can lust every bit as disgustingly as anybody else. But what Jesus is advocating for is that we would be the kind of people who would be taking radical steps to cut off from ourselves the things that cause us to fall into lust. I think there are some of us who need an amputation this morning. Some of us need an internet amputation to cancel our internet service in the house because it only spells disaster for us or if you can't do that get someone to put a filter on it with a password that they have and you don't or maybe start to use the internet for good instead of for evil by going to triplexchurch.com or dirtygirlsministries.com which are ministries for men and women to deal with lust I think there are some of us who need an entertainment amputation We need to cut off the movies that we watch or the television shows that aren't good for us or the books that we read or the the places that we visit or the songs we listen to. Whatever it is that feeds your mind with the images that propagate unhealthy patterns of feeling inside of you towards other people. If it's not helping you, cut it off. Better you, you know, go into heaven without your top 40 albums than to experience the hell that comes along with living a life of lust. Like some of us need to experience a free time amputation. Say, you know what? I'm not going to watch Monday night football or go out with my friends. I'm going to go to support group on Monday night because I need help with this. Some of us need an ego amputation to swallow our pride and to find somebody we trust and we love who we know will be for us and not against us and say, I struggle with this. You need to help me. Some of us need a financial amputation. We've been saving our money and 80 bucks an hour is a lot, but it's not a lot of money to pay somebody to help you walk through where this issue is coming from for you if that's what you need. Some of us need a relationship amputation. Because we've got friends that aren't good for us. Or we're in a relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend who's putting pressure on us to make decisions that would be unhealthy for us. Or who nurture unhealthy patterns of thinking for us. And we just need to cut it off and say, I just can't, I can't be with you anymore. 
Jesus says, if you want the life that I have for you, it is worth it to take whatever radical steps you need to take to deal with this issue in your heart. Because if you can, if you can cut this off, if you can stop treating sex like the cheap and casual selfish thing that we often encounter in culture, if you can, if you can stop looking at people, degrading their humanity and treating them like objects whose purpose is to gratify your needs, if you can push that out then you will have created a space in your life where you begin to experience a love life the way God has intended it to be the joy of being able to look people in the eye without guilt or shame because you've treated them with the dignity of respect of human beings created in the image of God you can know the joy and fulfillment of experiencing sex for everything that it was intended to be within the boundaries of a, of a committed lifelong partnership with your best friend who's doing life together with you. And it can be this thing that joins you together in this spiritual unity of being one flesh and giving yourself to the other person in a way that actually lets them feel in their body how much they are loved. Because God has been allowed to cut out the selfishness of that lust in your heart and fill it with a love for him and a love for everyone else that takes the brokenness of sex the way we sometimes experience it and makes it beautiful again. All of what we're talking about this morning is what it means to be on the pathway of life, of experiencing more and better, more abundant, meaningful, purposeful, hope-filled, joyful life than you could have ever imagined. And it comes through a life of love rather than lust. Let's pray together. Father, we live in a hyper, hyper sexualized culture. It's around us every day in ways beyond our control. Would you, God, by your spirit, take control of our motivations, of our desires, of our impulses? Would you fill us with your power to choose life and hope and joy and peace by living with each other in relationships that honor you because they are relationships filled with the giving of love rather than the taking of lust. Would you do that for your sake? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.